Welcome back to New Books and Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Shelbrack about his great new book, Philosophy and the Study of Religions, a Manifesto, which was published by Wiley Blackwell in 2014. Very often, evaluative questions about cultural phenomena are avoided for more descriptive or explanatory goals when approaching religions. Traditionally, this set of concerns has been left to philosophers of religion. In this great new book, Kevin Shilbrack argues that the philosophical approaches to the study of religion plays a central role in our understanding of both religious communities and the discipline of religious studies. This book offers a critique of what Shelbrack calls traditional philosophy of religion, characterized as narrow, intellectualist, and insular, and a toolkit for achieving a global, practice-centered, and reflexive philosophical approach. With our wide-ranging goals in sight, we are offered a new definition of religion that points us in a common direction for analyzing social data. Ultimately, Shelbrack positions his new evaluative approach as one branch in a tripartite methodology, complementing more dominant descriptive and explanatory approaches. Overall, this book looks to the future of the field and offers interesting directions for others to follow. In our conversation, we discuss religious practice, cognition, belief, embodiment, conceptual metaphors, definitional boundaries, super-empirical realities, and the ontology of religion, among many, many other things. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kevin Shelbrack. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome. This morning I have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Shelbrock about his great new book, Philosophy and the Study of Religions, A Manifesto. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Hi, Christian. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for making the time to, to talk to me about this great book. Um, as someone who's not well-versed in the philosophy of religions, this was, this was a great introduction and motivation to, to delve further into it. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, before we get into what you're doing, which is some really ex- exciting challenges for the field, I was hoping you could kind of let us know a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in the study of religions, uh, perhaps people that have been influential in, in your approach or uh, how you got hooked. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think I have a, a, a path that is similar to other people who are interested in the philosophical or the theological or the normative side of religious studies. Um, uh, I'm the kind of person who was always animated by the existential questions and um, uh, arrived in college with that kind of uh, introspective and um, maybe ethical uh, set of questions about who I am and what I owe to other people and what makes the right action the right action, those kinds of philosophical questions. Um, and that was nurtured in, in college. I went to Rollins College in Central Florida and um, had good uh, liberal arts teachers there who, um, who, who nurtured those kinds of questions. And I think I could have easily gone to graduate school in philosophy as easily as religious studies. And, and it was my sense that um, the, the questions about virtue, the questions about um, uh, selfhood, uh, the questions about metaphysics that, that, that I had would, would, find an, a better home in religious studies than they would in philosophy. I think um, in the 1980s, in uh, the Anglophone world, 
uh, a lot of those questions were um, seen as um, passe in philosophy, and I worried that I wouldn't find a good uh, grad school to work on them. Um, but I was open to either one, and I ended up in, in, in religious studies um, and, and happily. And uh, I applied to a bunch of places, but uh, ended up at University of Chicago, which turned out to be um, a, a perfect place for me. Just as I got there, they, um, or just as I was about to take my doctoral exams, they took, they, they added a, a track in philosophy of religion at the University of Chicago Divinity School. I, I think the Divinity School is known for comparative religions, uh, but that wasn't my track at all. Um, and and the, the people in, in comparative religions there tended not to be uh, asking philosophical questions, and, and I, was, I was frustrated by that until they added that track. So I worked with... Um, uh, Chris Gamwell, uh, who does metaphysics, and um, Paul Griffiths, who does uh, comparative philosophy of religion at Chicago, and um, and it ended up ended up being a, a, the, the perfect place for me. I, I got I caught that that bug that people catch in graduate school about um, the excitement of their um, their inquiries, and and I still have it. Uh, what is it now? About twenty years later. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and in the book, you you know you mentioned that that was a long time ago, but uh, you did state that these people kind of place this kind of inquiry into this field uh, uh, in, in your research. So uh, it's interesting to kind of hear that background. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this book began to emerge uh, from your kind of larger research trajectory. You've written a lot. Uh, on various topics. So, uh, wh- why this book? And, uh, it's, it's, I don't know if I want to say controversial, but it's, it's definitely stirring the water. So why this type of book? Why a manifesto? Uh, well, maybe that question has, I, I can answer on, on, on two levels. One of them might be of interest to your listeners just about, um, getting published. And the other one is, is, is more directly focused on the question that you're asking about uh, stirring the waters. So um, I got hired originally at a small liberal arts college that had heavy teaching expectations and minimal um, publication expectations. And I never felt that I had the time uh, to uh, devote to a book. And I didn't know if I was ever going to get a book written. Um, Everything I wrote was was articles, and I tried to engage the questions that mattered to me, and I was getting published, but um, uh, I didn't have a monograph, and I didn't even know that I had one in me. And I was contacted by the um, editor at Blackwell, who had apparently come across some of those articles and thought that I was a clear writer, and thought that I um, helped frame questions in a way that a broad readership uh, could appreciate and get um uh, engaged in, and she invited me to write a manifesto uh, out of the blue. Um, I, I didn't approach them at all, and they have a series, um, a manifesto series, with people in the humanities uh, staking a position and arguing uh, for a certain agenda in uh, peace studies or Shakespeare or um, uh, uh, historiography. That there, there's a more than two dozen, maybe three dozen books in the series so far. And so the, the book, this book was originally going to be called um, The Future of Philosophy of Religion. 
uh, and it wasn't until it was in press that the title was changed to um, Philosophy and the Study of Religions with a manifesto as the, as the subtitle that kind of links it to the other books in their series. So that's the general uh, question. But <clears throat> once, I was, uh, once I had accepted the contract to, to write this book for Blackwell, um, I had so much freedom in order to, um, to, to pick the topics that were in the book. And in some ways, I, I think um, I did not do a good job of that. And, and, and by that, I mean that um, if you, for those who've seen the book, there's one chapter, for example, on um, uh, practice and performance and embodiment. And um, I had to um, do my best to get a hold on the literature in that subfield. Uh, and once that chapter was finished, then I had another chapter on philosophy of mind and uh, belief and disposition. And so I had to set down that pile of books that I'd worked through to do the performance chapter and pick up another chapter on um, cognition, uh, pick up another set of books on cognition. And once that one was done, there's another chapter on on realism and um, metaphysics and reference. And so every chapter was on a, is on a different set of questions. Uh, it was exhausting, to be, to be honest. Um, I, I felt that I was never able to finish one chapter and then you know, turn the page, so to speak, and just start writing the next one. I had to do more research for each one. Uh, I, I hope that makes the book engaging. I hope that, that the people who read the book, therefore, um, feel that they are walked through a set of questions that are all different and interesting and provocative, but it was it's a difficult way to write a book. Now when I pick up other people's books, I see that the whole book is on Schleiermacher. <laughs> right. Whatever it is, and then, um, and I think uh, that would be uh, an easier book to to, to write, uh, and a smarter book to write, um, and uh, but it's not the way I did this one. Yeah, well, we we appreciate all your effort because I think this uh, this book definitely does walk us through an interesting set of questions. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about, kind of the writing process and the way you wrote the book, was uh, you wrote at the end of each chapter. Uh, what you call bibliographic essays. I'm wondering if you could talk about what made you approach your sources in this way, and perhaps what your intention was behind these. I found them very helpful and and much more interesting than reading a list of sources. Yeah, um, that was a um, a decision made um, awkwardly, mostly by the publisher, but uh, I'm happy with the result. I mean, the situation is this: they wanted a manifesto that didn't have footnotes. They wanted a manifesto that was um, speaking, you might say, in the first person, where you say, I believe this, and I think that we should do that. And um, and, and, and I, I like that idea for a book, but I didn't want to write a book without footnotes. <laughs> right. Uh, well, partly, you know, because like lots of scholars, I, I, I find them important, but also it's my first book, and I thought it's going to be strange if I'm pontificating to the academy <laughs> With, with no reference to what anybody else has ever thought. And so I wrote the papers as if they were traditional scholarship, not for the manifesto. And then I had to find a way to fit them into the manifesto. So what I did was I removed 90% of the footnotes and moved them all into those bibliographic essays. So instead of having footnotes that would distract from the reading of the chapter, and I think that the publisher was right that 
a manifesto shouldn't have those. But it also might be true that undergraduates are not especially interested in the minutia of 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 the different schools of thought about some question and so forth. And so it's fine, I think, to have removed them from the bottom of the page and move them back to the end of the chapter so that someone can just read the chapter straight through and think about the the questions that I'm talking about and not care about who said what or, or what's the state of the discipline in, in, uh, in whatever field. Uh, but then if you, a person is interested in that and, and like you said, a person, someone can go back and read the bibliographic essay and, and hopefully get a nice picture of, um, what the positions are and why they've been taken and, and who stands for what. So it was, it was a compromise, but, uh, I'm happy with the end result. I actually submitted to them one bibliographic essay at the end of the entire book, broken up into um, chapter sections, and they re-separated those and moved them to the end of each chapter, which I thought that Blackwell did a lot of smart things with the book, and I, I'm really happy with the, the work they did um, the, that we did together. Yeah, yeah, I think it really came out great, and those are those are very helpful for people that do want to go further into this. You you really kind of outline the debate for them. Um, so much of your critique is uh, against what you call traditional philosophy of religion. Um, for for those of us that are not in the know, can you kind of walk us through what what is this? What is traditional philosophy of religion? How does it work? What are they trying to do? Uh, traditional philosophy of religion, I think you can sum up, or, or I sum up in the book, just as the rationality of theism. So. Traditional philosophy of religion uh, is the philosophical work that people do when they're reflecting on um, uh, what is godlike, uh, what what is uh, how, how can I make sense of um, omniscience or omnipotence? Um, how could there be a god that has those kinds of omni powers given the the evil that we see in the world or the amount of evil that we see in the world. Uh, Can I prove that there is such a God? Those I think are the traditional philosophical uh, philosophy of religion questions since David Hume, let's say for about the last 200 years. Um, And uh, I don't, uh, I'm not a hater. I I think they're, they're, they're they're good questions and they're the questions that drew me into the field. Um, Uh, I want to say more about traditional philosophy of religion, but um, I, me- I commented earlier that the future of philosophy of religion was the original title of the book, and it got changed to philosophy and the study of religions precisely because although the book opens with a critique of traditional philosophy of religion and it's it's being read by some traditional philosophers of religion as a critique of them, um, the book is has a far broader um, audience, and I'm hoping that people who are not in philosophy of religion uh, will pick up the book and say, well, I wonder how philosophy connects to other things that in the field. And so I'm happier with the, the, the vaguer title that it has now. I think, or maybe I should say more inclusive title that it has now. Um, yeah. One more word though, about traditional philosophy of religion. I, I think um, the trajectory of philosophy of religion is interesting. And, and, and what I'm about to say is not in the book, but it lies behind my, my, um, my motivation for writing the book. I think that as in the Enlightenment, as European intellectuals began to be critical publicly of Christian doctrine and started to ask the questions that I just listed, how could a God do this? Uh, what about evil? Uh, can there be proofs for the existence of God, especially after the scientific revolution? Um, 
Uh, those are the questions that people see in Hume and in Hegel and in Kant um, <clears throat> and in Kierkegaard and so forth. Um, but that's a long time ago in my mind. And, and by the time you reach the 20th century, I feel that the study of religions as a global discipline is really exploding. And the giants of sociology of religion, the giants of anthropology of religion, the giants of comparative religions, um, they, they're, they're struggling in the 20th century, especially after World War II, especially after the, um, uh, the return of religion, quote unquote, um, they're struggling to master a deluge of um, data. And when you turn from the study of religions broadly with that deluge of data to philosophy of religion, uh, you don't see the same thing. There's only a few philosophers of religion who are trying to rethink the concept of religion so that it's more inclusive, trying to understand how justification works outside of a theistic framework. And um, really, in the last, say, r roughly since 1980, um, I, I think philosophers of religion have actually retreated from the diversity of religions in the world. The, their argument goes something like this. Um, there are no, uh, given the collapse of foundationalism in philosophy, given the sense that there's no neutral criteria given the sense that there's no standards of rationality that are universal that we can just appeal to and say, now I can show you that this religion is better than that religion. If that's not possible, then philosophers of religion who emerge from a sectarian um, commitment or from a, from a sectarian community, they, they despair of, of engaging religions outside their own. And they think more in a silo where they say something like this, I myself or the people in my community, we take this scripture to be uh, foundational for us or we take some religious experience to be basic for us. Um, and there's no way for us to convince anybody else that this scripture is right or that that experience is right. And so we're not even going to try. So our only task as philosophers of religion is to clarify what it means to be a member of this particular community. And so at the same time that I see religious studies opening up and um, becoming more inclusive, I see philosophers of religion, um, uh, for the most part, uh, giving up on that, that global project. And so the book was designed to build a bridge between those two communities so that religious studies people who are interested in philosophical questions could, could see how they might engage them. And philosophers of religion who, who wanted to um, take seriously that explosion of information that we have about um, people of Africa, people of South America, people of South Asia, just religions all around the world, um, uh, would also find a bridge going in the opposite direction. Now, uh, just just to kind of catch listeners up, um, I guess probably your your ultimate goal here is to create a, a global practice center and reflexive philosophy of religion. Which, um, in your discussion of traditional philosophy of religion, you you argue that the state now is it's generally narrow, intellectualist, and insular. Um, so, and this this comes out in some of the the following chapters. So, um, perhaps we could start with religious practice, since you have a whole chapter on this. Um, yeah. What? So, what? Why has there been a hesitation to explore religious practice in the philosophy of religion, and and how should we kind of approach it? Do you think? Um, 
the, the first thing to note, I think, is is that there has been a, a kind of division of, of labor. Um, and, and if under the category of religious practice, you include ritual and ceremony and performance uh, and worship and sacrifice, um, those are questions that you're not going to find in any philosophy of religion book. Uh, you do find them, obviously, in anthropology of religion books or sociology of religion books. Um, and so I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's a, a, a kind of unspoken division of labor where philosophers see themselves as dealing with the cognitive aspects of religion, which they take it are found in um, religious doctrines, or maybe you'd say in religious intellectuals, in, in religious uh, texts sometimes. Um, but the the embodied parts, the lived parts of, of religion, the the performed parts of religion, they leave to the side for anthropologists and sociologists and other social scientists, for historians of religion to study. I mean, it, just if you look at the different journals, if you look at a philosophy of religion journal and you look for anything at all on performance or practice or ceremony or ritual, it's there's almost nothing. You find the occasional paper on prayer, uh, but that's it. Again, as I said before, reflecting the rationality of theism that defines the traditional philosophy of religion task. Um, but if you open up, a, you know, um, the journal religion or the uh, um, history of religions or or, or or journals that have a more social scientific bent, uh, there, there's there's a there's a wealth of, of, of information about uh, performance, practice, ceremony and ritual. So um, I think that division is kind of this weird mind-body split, this kind of Cartesian split in our field. Um, and so the chapter that you're referring to in my book about practice, uh, I just started to think, what could a philosopher of religion do uh, if she wanted to um, uh, to take practice seriously or to take uh, ritual seriously? Um, should I go into the details of that chapter? Um, if you'd like. I mean, I think you're, you're offering some interesting... Uh ways of getting at that, I think. Yeah. So you, you offer us a toolkit, right, with various, uh, I guess, levels of uh, approaching practice. Maybe you could mention that a little bit. Uh, well, well, for me, <clears throat> it, it isn't enough to just say, um, uh, look, philosophers of religion have not looked at practice and they ought to look at practice. They ought to read um, social scientific reports about um, rituals and so forth. The rituals and religious practices generally will only be of interest and should only be of interest to philosophers if there's something philosophically relevant about them. And so the question for me is, are, are the practices um, uh, events or opportunities or situations in which the practitioners uh, do something philosophical, in, in which they inquire into the world or they learn something about the world or they, they have a hypothesis that they test in the world. And if they don't, then the philosophers are, are not wrong to just leave rituals for um, the social scientists. <clears throat> um, but then I think that maybe uh, what I just said is a good way of thinking about the question that has been assumed, uh, and, and that is that rituals are thoughtless. Rituals are not cognitive forms of inquiry. They're not um, explorations of the world. They are mechanical, fictitious, or they're rote. Uh, and, and if that's the assumption, and, and, and 
I don't know how to prove something like that, but it, that seems to be a widespread uh, assumption. But if that's the assumption, then you can see the extent to which um, philosophy of religion reflects a Protestant bias against um, uh, against the Judaic ritualizing or the Catholic ritualizing. It's a rejection of the value of of religious work, and uh, so I guess I'm, I'm undermining that. Um, I, I spent a year at Harvard actually, and Larry, Som- uh, Larry Sullivan was the um, the director for the um, Center for the Study of World Religions at the time, and, and he made a list of the biggest names in ritual studies. Um, oh, Victor Turner and Catherine Bell and himself, and and I don't know, maybe a dozen people. Um, all of them were Catholic or former Catholics, and, and I think that that. The observation I'm making now, which is not exactly in the book, but the book springs from, is is the sense to which um, Anglophone reflection on religion shows a Protestant bias against um, embodied practice. So that's what I'm trying to think against or think um, in, in opposition to. And you're right. So I've got a kind of a toolkit. Um, there's a anthropologists that who might draw on who um, who sees practice uh, or sees embodiment as a way of being in the world and uh, I think Merleau-Ponty or, or perhaps to a secondary extent Pierre Bourdieu are, are, are the are the theoretical backbone of his work so um, I think that there's no reason why philosophers of religion cannot follow Thomas Chortus, the anthropologist I'm talking about, um, in adopting embodiment as a religious way of being in the world. Uh, And then that immediately opens up to them that whole set of philosophical tools that are, are are widespread in philosophy, especially in continental philosophy, but but rarely used among philosophers of religion that have to do with studying uh, the phenomenology of of movement, of gesture, of of being with other people, of of, um, uh, physical transformations. So that's one of the tools in the toolkit is that embodiment paradigm. Another one is uh, conceptual metaphors uh, that uh, show the ways that being in the world, that that, um, moving through the world helps people think, develops um, uh, metaphors or analogies for uh, more abstract ways of of conceptualizing a person's life. Uh, the example I give in the book is, um, you know, moving from point A to point B, and the person thinks of that as a journey. Uh, they physically move from point A to point B, and that's how a person learns what a journey is. But then you can talk about the journey of my career or the journey of our marriage or the, the journey of writing this book, and you start to abstract from the physical domain um, a metaphor in order to conceptualize a, 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 a more uh, conceptual domain where the philosophers uh, are, I think are more comfortable. And then the third and the, the last of the tools in the toolkit has to do with um, cognitive prosthetics or, or, or physical tools that people have um, in their, uh, on their desk or, or, or at hand to help them do uh, uh, conceptual work.
Um, a classic example is just when you try to, to do math, you try to do math, uh, let's say not seven times six, but a more complicated number. If you try to multiply a four, four digit number times another four digit number, most of us can do that, uh, uh, on a piece of paper with a pencil. And so if you think of the paper and the pencil as a, as a prosthetic device or as a, um, an extended, uh, a tool in the world that helps the person do the conceptual work. Um, the question then is whether the material culture of religious life, whether ritual implements also extend the cognitive ability of the mind in order to remember things that were taught before in order to reinforce them or in, in, in also in order to um, uh, rearrange them so that the ideas that the, religious practices giving the practitioner uh, are not merely, quote-unquote, in their head, but they're in the temple or they're in the synagogue or they're in the church, uh, physically available for the person to uh, touch or handle or walk around and see um, in order, like the tiles in a Scrabble game, to rearrange them and rearrange them and rearrange them until that person finds a way that they fit. Obviously, they're given a limited set of Scrabble tiles, quote-unquote, um, uh, depending on, on, on what community they're a part of, but then they can rearrange those tiles in order to find a way that fits for them that's acceptable both to their community and uh, uh, connects to whatever it is, the, pro the, the conceptual problem they're dealing with. Uh, I give an example of um, the state cross or the, the, um, the temple I saw in Thailand that had paintings on the wall uh, of, of stories from the Ramayana, and uh, the person can look at the stations of the cross or look at the um, pictures of the Ramayana and say, oh, there's an example of heroism, and here's an example of grief, and here's an example of kinship, and here's an example of romantic love, and, and they can look at these um, images that's the, those are analogous to the Scrabble tiles, and, and, and pick which ones speak to their heart the most or, or they think fit their circumstances the most. So that was my suggestion was that in the same way that um, cognitive scientists see um, uh, writing implements, artistic representations, um, mathematical tools like the paper and the pencil or a calculator, they see those as cognitive prosthetics that extend the ability of people to solve problems. Uh, philosophers of religion and, and others could see um, material culture of a ritual environment in, in, in an analogous way. And I think you you, uh, you make a very convincing argument here and uh, provided with the tools that you give us. Um, related to this um, is this idea of where then is belief? Belief has held a central role in the philosophy of religion. Um, so in, in this next chapter, um, you basically outline various arguments or objections to focusing on belief. Um, but then you, you kind of rethink what, what belief is and, and what we can get out of looking at it. Can you tell us a little bit about, about this discussion? Yeah, I think this is a discussion that in some ways is, is uh, of the seven chapters in the book is, is somewhat basic. And in other ways, it's, I, I mean, in the sense that it, here, I'll give you an, an anecdote. Um, I, I took that chapter and I sent it to a journal to see if they would publish it um, before it came out in the book. <clears throat> and I sent it to a philosophy journal. And, and as you say, the, the, the chapter describes ways in which 
theorists of religion have objected to the category of belief, and you find some people saying we shouldn't talk about belief anymore, or or um, it's 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 mistaken to 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 think that religion is about belief, or that even the religious people have to have beliefs. And so I, I, I as you say, I outlined those problems at the beginning. And the journal mailed me back the paper, and they said it was a really clear paper and, and not a bad paper, but they they couldn't understand how anyone would think that you can understand human activity without the concept of belief. They said that's the kind of thing that would only happen in, in religious studies, um, not in philosophy. <laughs> and so in some ways they, they rejected the paper because they thought the problem was an artificial one. Um, and I know what they mean, but I still think that in religious studies, and really not just in religious studies, but whenever you're trying to interpret intentional behavior on the part of somebody, um, I think we still have more work to do to figure out um, what can a person know of another uh, when we're interpreting behavior. Um, can we say, oh, I saw their behavior, so I know what their beliefs are? Uh, to any extent, um, how, how, how divided are we in terms of understanding uh, the, the structure of other people's um, behavior? Um, in some ways, like I said, I thought that that chapter was, um, was not reaching the level of comp complexity that that philosophy journal wanted. But in other ways, I think it's a question that if other people just want to read that one chapter, I think it could be a, a springboard or a stepping stone to further work on, that has to do with, um, interpretation of intentions by, by agents. And that seems to me non-eliminable from the study of religious practice, from the study of religious phenomena. And, and I think the field needs more help thinking about that, about the difference between internal perspectives and external perspectives, uh, about the interpretation of behavior um, and the interpretation of linguistic behavior. Um, what is presupposed when we interpret another person what can we know and what can't we know so that's a that's a short version but uh, i'm happy about that chapter in the sense that when i finished it and that journal declined it i thought well maybe this is too basic but as i continue to read and, and basically in the year since uh, i sent the manuscript into the publisher uh, i continue to see people struggling with this theorists of religion struggling with these kinds of questions about agency and intention and uh, subjectivity and experience so uh, i think the problem is definitely still with us um in the next kind of uh, couple of chapters, you deal with this idea of religion itself as a as a category. What is religion? Um, and you start with this uh, critique of religion, and you divide it into kind of a three level uh, critique, um, and kind of outline how how someone might think about these critiques. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through some of these arguments, right? So the idea that it's socially constructed, um, the idea that it distorts the reality that it uh, describes. What are what are these critiques about, and then how can we respond to these? Uh, you're right to see the next two chapters as kind of a pair in the in the book. The chapter four is about the ontology of the concept of religion. So what kind of reality does it have when you say there is a religion um, 
in Peru, let's say. Um, and then, uh, so chapter four is about this question. Are we projecting the reality of religion out onto the world where it doesn't really have any uh, purchase? Is it a Western concept? Is it a Christian concept that we're imposing on other people who wouldn't recognize it? And, and therefore, it, it, it might be fair to say it's an imperialistic concept or we're, we're um, uh, as you said, distorting the forms of life of people in the world in order to mold them into um, a Western or European perspective. That's what chapter four is about. And so the question is whether or not it's fair to say or proper to say or legitimate to say that uh, religions are real, that there are religions out there, that if somebody doesn't use the concept of religion, whether we can say that they have a religion. Uh, That's chapter four. I, I can uh, you asked me to walk through the, con- the the arguments against the category of religion, and um, that was a, a, an exciting chapter for me to write, or a powerful chapter for me to write, precisely because uh, I was so impressed by the critics of the concept of religion. So even though I'm a defender of it, and I distinguish basically between abolitionists who say we should get rid of the concept and retentionists like me who say that we should keep it, um, and I'm a retentionist, I I was so impressed by the abolitionists. And I think pedagogically speaking, when you're in the classroom, to, to get students to see the way that our concepts have a history and that they do serve the purposes of the people who've developed those concepts as tools, uh, that's a powerful pedagogical device. And, and to, to say, how could you sort out what people are doing without using the concept of religion and to talk about some other kind of social formation or some other kind of ideology, uh, that's a helpful thing for students to do. I, I think that chapter, again, you can lift the individual chapters out of the book. And I think that chapter could be paired with the, um, um, an essay by a critic of the concept of religion in a, in a way that was pedagogically useful for the classroom. Um, but despite the fact that I do think that religion is a category that was developed for um, uh, what Western purposes uh, in the last few hundred years, uh, I, I do think it's illuminating. I do think it's a useful concept. Um, I do think it's it's not in, illegitimate to say that there are religions out there, even among people who don't use the concept. In this respect, it's similar to the word politics, or it's similar perhaps to the word sexism. If you say, oh, I think I see sexist phenomena or a pattern of behavior I would describe as sexist, um, it would not be an objection to say, yeah, but the person who's acting that way doesn't use that word, doesn't even know that word. Um, the culture you're talking about would not describe itself as sexist. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not sexism there. And so I think religion is, is analogous to, to that situation. Um, that's chapter four. And chapter five, um, having defended the legitimacy of the category of religion, I then thought I needed to... Um, make a stab at defining what it, what is, in my own judgment, the best way to define the term, what's the best way to define religion. So, Yeah, and if I could uh, jump in here. Um, yeah. uh, so that's great. And I'm wondering if you could talk just uh, before you maybe tell us what, what your – 
you know, kind of limiting as religion. Um, if you could talk about uh, why you're attempting to define it, what's the purpose or the value of def- definition for you? Um, you talk about it as a strategy, right? So what's what's the best way to approach this social phenomena that we're looking at, and why does a definition help us think about that? Oh, well, you know, since I, I think it's it's legitimate, like I said, to, to, to use this concept, then I think there's a burden on people to define how they're using the terms. Um, here's, here's an analogy that makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, I went out to dinner one time with a, a guy who was a friend of mine, and he said, uh, we're on a date. And I said, well, I don't think we're on a date. And uh, he said, but you called me and you picked me up and, and you're the one paying for dinner. So I think we are on a date. And uh, so it's worth thinking about. People disagree about their definition of a date. Um, if you define a date as a, a social event that might involve romance, then we were not on a date. But if you define a date as a, a social event where one person invites out another and pays for their dinner, then we were on a date. Um, it, a date, like a religion, is a social construction in the sense that you can't look at what the people are doing and tell whether they're on a date. It's, it's not determined by the, um, the events of what they're doing. You have to come up with a definition um, that makes sense to you that helps you clarify what, your social, what, what social behavior means. So uh, I think there are dates out there, um, given my definition, and I think there are religions out there, given my definition, but there's still an obligation on me to clarify um, the definition. And um, once you have a definition, if you say, this is how I define a date, and you share it with somebody else, you say, look at how this is, this is the, the tool I want to use, it's fair for them to say, oh, really, that's your definition of a date? Did you go on a date? Uh, was it a good date? Those questions make sense. If you have no definition of a date, then you can't ever say there are dates, and you can't ever say that there's a good date. And so for me, this is a conceptual tool that helps me illuminate social behavior, and uh, it's analogous to the date situation. I think in both cases, it's legitimate to define it and um, not inappropriate or, um, as the critics have said, what, imperialistic or, or hegemonic to, to, to work with the definition. Um, it's, I'm a pragmatist, and, and I want to be real clear about what tools I'm using and to see um, what's uh, revealed about social behavior once you use those tools. So um, my definition, though, for, for, for this Chapter 5, um, it, it's, it, it might be a little unwieldy or complicated, but I hope that as people work through that chapter um, – that they get some sense of the costs and benefits of, of different decisions about, as you said, different strategies for defining religion. And, and I don't know if this comes through, but really my target in that chapter, the, the, the definition of religion that I wanted to get away from is Paul Tillich's. So Paul Tillich um, defines religion in terms of ultimate concern. And I t- talk about a bunch of other philosophers and not just philosophers, but social scientists who, who have bought into that definition that, uh, which I call a, a pure functionalist definition. So if you say whatever serves in your life as an orientation, uh, whatever serves in your life uh, to to rank your values, whatever serves in your life as your highest concern, your ultimate concern, that's your religion. So a person in this respect, and this was Tillich's goal, right, was to say Nazism could be a, a demonic religion. 
and therefore it's at it's at war with with other religions. Um, some of the other philosophers and social scientists I look at talk about money being a person's religion, or even sports if the person is a, a super fan um, being their religion. And this is the definition of religion I was trying to move away from. I feel like it, it's it's not especially helpful for the empirical study of religions because this means that you could watch a person who regularly attends um, traditional religious practices, but you don't know whether or not that's their religion because you don't know if it's their highest concern. And in fact, um, their band or their sports team or their money or something that uh, one can't tell from the, from from uh, observing their behavior, that is their ultimate concern and that's their religion. I feel like that definition of religion, which I find common among theologians and philosophers of religion, um, makes conversations with um, social scientists difficult. It muddies the water. I think it's a, a, a poor tool for sorting what's religious from what's not religious. And therefore, my definition of religion uh, includes what I call a substantive element. There has to be some reality that is a religious reality that's um, present in the definition uh, in order to sort something religious from not religious. The, the problem is that the previous substantive definitions, the earliest ones I talk about are, if it doesn't have the Christian God, then it's not a religion. Then it's, if it doesn't have a supreme God of some kind, that's Herbert's or, or George Lessing's uh, uh, definition of religion, or maybe it has to have a, a, a spiritual being of some kind. Those are the first three stages uh, of substantive definitions. Uh, I, I want to move past those, and I want to have some substantive element that moves my definition away from Tillich's ultimate concern, um, but is not limited to theistic religions. So my proposal is of super empirical realities, which uh, I define, uh, I hope, carefully enough so that that's a useful concept, which is to say it, the, in order for some phenomenon to qualify as religious for me, it has to have a non-empirical element that is the product of nothing empirical. So somebody might say patriotism is non-empirical. Uh, or, or let's say reverence for the U.S. Constitution, if that's what defines patriotism, that's non-empirical. But the Constitution is a product of people working in a certain place and time, and therefore nationalism or patriotism or following a, a rock and roll band or following a sports team, none of those things would count as religious for me because they wouldn't be super empirical. On the other hand, uh, the Tao or Brahman or the Logos those are non-theistic, super-empirical realities, and so they would count as religious for me. Uh, I don't know if people need a new definition of religion, and so people might skip that chapter. But if someone's trying to think through the possibilities, the different ways that religion has been and can be defined, then I hope that chapter is helpful to them. Yeah, I think you do a good job, and it, uh, it, it navigates this fine line of being broad enough and, and then narrow enough to, to include the types of things we want to study together. I think, I think you do a very good job. I'll just interject really quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I find other people, the way you put it was exactly right. I find other people who say, these are the things we want to study. We think Taoism is a religion. We think Buddhism is a religion. So we want to add those to Christianity, let's say in Islam. Um, and, and so 
but then they despair of finding a way of putting those into a set. They say something like this, religion cannot be defined. There's no com- there's no element that all those, all those movements have in common. Um, and, and so my proposal is I'm not, I, I don't see myself as simply following conventional ways of speaking where people say, we now say Buddhism is a religion or we now quote unquote, know the Buddhism's a religion or Taoism's a religion. Um, uh, but we just don't know how I, I was trying to find a way, uh, a principled way to sort Buddhism in and being a fan of the Rolling Stones out or Taoism <laughs> in, but Karl Marx out. And so that's, I guess the test for that chapter, whether it, it does a good job with that. Um, and the idea that we're, that we're just going, we know what religion is because people talk that way now, um, wasn't acceptable to me. No. So um, if we have religion based on super empirical realities, um, this brings in metaphysical claims that uh, that you you outline many philosophers would question nowadays. So could you tell us about the the dilemma of dealing with religious metaphysics in what you call a uh, a post metaphysical age? Uh, yeah, I, I not everything that's super empirical is metaphysical, but 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 some of it is, and I, I think some of the stuff that's been most interesting to philosophers of religion is metaphysical. So uh, I myself am fascinated by those claims made by members of religious communities that say we want to talk about something that we think is true always and everywhere. And, and they're, they're not usually motivated just by wonder or by curiosity about the world. They probably say something like this. We think this particular way of living is the right way, and we want to legitimate that by an appeal to something that we think is true always and everywhere. I mean, it's, here's the analogy. If somebody says, get out of the, car, get out of the street, a car is coming, that, that's a recommendation for action justified with reference to some contingent reality, the car that's coming. But if somebody says you ought to practice this way of life, um, not because there's something contingently true here and now, there's something always and everywhere true. Everybody always should have our way of life. That's what I think is the role of metaphysics for religious communities. It's like the ultimate trump card. And so I don't want to exclude them. Sometimes I see people, um, social scientists, excluding metaphysics because they think there's no way to make sense out of metaphysics. So they say, you know, we're going to treat religion as really a reference to politics or really a reference to their society or really a reference to gender, really a reference to class. And they lower, so to speak, the scope of the claims that the religious community is making. They're not always and everywhere. They're just true of this class. Um, so I'm hoping that the rehabilitation of metaphysics that I try to do in, in chapter six uh, succeeds to the point that that those who are not interested in adjudicating metaphysical claims will still say it makes sense to talk about them and we can see why religious communities care about them. We don't think it's, it's irrational for them to refer that uh, to metaphysical claims. Um, and the final chapter is really wonderful. And I think uh, that this can certainly be of value to anybody, even if they don't read any other chapter in the book. Um, and what you're doing here is you're, you're kind of outlining where the philosophy of religion fits into the larger study of religion. So um, you, you call religious studies a, a, a tripartite field. Um, can, you, can you kind of walk us through what your argument is here, where the philosophy of religion fits? 
uh, yeah, thanks for the compliment. Um, uh, when I talk to people in religious studies, you know, when I go to the AAR, when I go to another conference, there does seem to be a, a lack of clarity about how um, the different tasks in the field fit together. Um, sometimes there's a sort of resentment as if, well, my discipline is doing this great stuff, but it's unappreciated, or my discipline does this great stuff. I don't know why people do that other stuff. I think it's uh, uninteresting or, or maybe irrelevant. And so my goal in that chapter was to, to draw a map that shows how the different questions that get asked in the field dovetail with each other and, and feed into each other and connect to each other. And then I sort them into three questions, as you said, a tripartite field. The basic question, you might say the root question, is simply to understand religious phenomena. So the question is something like this. Um, what, um, what is it that the people are doing when they do that? You know, What is it that, that people are doing when they go into a trance or when they pray or when they make a sacrifice or when they circumcise or, 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 or whatever the, the, the practice or the institution or the belief or the experience is? That's the that's the basic question. It's a uh, it's an interpretive question, right? The, the the scholar's goal is to get some clarity of understanding about um, what people mean by what they say, what they mean by what they do. So that's a phenomenological or hermeneutic task. And the phenomenology of religion is is often criticized, as I said earlier. That I, I see people squabbling about what belongs in the field. I think phenomenology or hermeneutics is often criticized, but I think it's 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 uh, it's a necessary step, and if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have any data to work with. And so, the only criticism that uh, I, I want to support of phenomenology of religion or hermeneutics is when uh, the those phenomenologists limit religious studies to what they do. And they say the only thing we should do in religious studies is seek to understand people. We shouldn't criticize them. We shouldn't be critical of them. We shouldn't reflect on what they do with categories that they themselves wouldn't accept. That's the argument that I'm not accepting. So for me, the root task or the basic task, the starting task that gives us our data is this phenomenological or hermeneutical task of interpreting what people say, what their texts say, what their actions say, so that um, we have some phenomena to work with. That's stage one. And then, like the letter Y, there's a split, and one can ask two different kinds of questions. One set of questions is explaining that phenomena, and a scholar might say, now that I understand what they mean when they say it, I want to explain why they say it. I have a causal explanation that has to do with brain modularity sometimes, or political ideology sometimes, or um, infantile neurosis sometimes. I want to explain why people are, why they say what they say, um, why they do what they do. So that's a separate task, though, from from the, the first one of describing. The first one is non-critical. Um, I just want to understand. And the second one is critical, where the scholar is entitled to uh, seek to explain phenomena and predict phenomena based on categories that the insiders themselves don't have, or if they did have, might not accept. That's one branch of that Y-shaped um, map of the field. And the other branch of the Y-shaped map of the field is an evaluative one. Uh, and that's where the, the philosophers or ethicists or theologians or, or ask this evaluative question is asking, they're asking, um, is that true? Is it right? So 
the 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 root basic phenomenological description might say, well, what they mean when they say that God is like this is is such and such, and then the the philosopher or ethicist or, or theologian or or political theorist or whoever else wants to ask these normative questions wants to know if there's good reasons, not causes, as on the other branch of the why, not on the other critical branch, but 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 reasons. Are there good reasons for holding? that it's true that justice is like that, or it's true that morality is like this, or it's true that reality is like this. Um, so as I, as I separate them, there's those three general tasks, um, but they all fit together with each other in a coherent way, and they can be in conversation with each other. Uh, the, the, the philosophers of religion who are, are asking the critical question can also ask the critical question about the social scientists and say, it, do you have good reasons for your explanations of religion? And the social scientists can ask causal questions about the philosophers. They can say, why you evaluate religions in the way you do can be this history, through this psychology. Now, um, Kevin, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you'd like to kind of wrap up our conversation with? Uh, Yeah, maybe. Um, I think a good label... I talk about traditional philosophy of religion being too narrow, as you said, and that it ought to grow to include these other questions. And But what we've been talking about for the last hour um, maybe needs the label philosophy of religious studies in order to, to distinguish it from philosophy of religion. As I see it, philosophy of religion has three tasks, um, three axes I talk about. And one of those tasks or axes is this philosophy of religious studies. But um, I don't know. I invite the listeners to your your broadcast to um to think about this as a uh, uh, a legitimate subfield that that the history of religious studies as it's emerged um, can use or or could could benefit from more philosophical contributions and so those people who are philosophically inclined um, whether or not they would identify themselves as philosophers those people who are interested in theories and methods in the study of religion. Um, uh, I don't know. I invite them to uh, to to ask these kinds of questions and to help us clarify the coherence of our field as a whole, um, so as to better defend it in the academy and to to explain it to our students. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I think you do a, a, a great job, and um, the the last chapter for me really helps me kind of rethink, uh, especially in my teaching, what what I'm trying to communicate, how we approach the study of religion. So. So thank you. Thanks, Christian. Yeah. Before uh, I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now or what, what kind of things we might see from you in the future? Oh, gosh. I'm so swamped right now, <laughs> which is a good thing, although I, I don't have another book I'm working on, but uh, I'm editing the Blackwell Companion to Religious Diversity, and that should come out in 2015. And... Uh, um, I've got papers on religious disagreement and on experience as a category in religion, uh, normativity in religious studies. Um, You know what? People who are interested in my work should follow my page on academia.edu, and I'll post my papers there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thank you, Kevin, again. We appreciate you making the time, and uh, thanks for, for writing this wonderful book. It was a pleasure, Christian. Thank you for the invitation. 
That was my conversation with Kevin Shelbrack about his great new book, Philosophy and the Study of Religions, A Manifesto, published by Wiley Blackwell in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.